in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 to 11. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shoal and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. I'm just going to pray again. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we come to your word, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying to us this morning. Thank you that you're living and active and that we can trust you. Amen. Amen. We're going to be asking ourselves the question this morning, uh, what do we do what do we do when we feel like our lives aren't really adding up to much? What do we do when we feel like everything is just a bit pointless? The world says and the answers you're going to see a lot in this of uh, the answer to this question is often you need to come up with your own kind of meaning in life. You need to find meaning in yourself. You need to figure out who you are and not listen to anyone else. Don't care what anyone else thinks. Just be yourself. That's what's going to give you meaning. Or you might hear said, find meaning in what you do. Pursue a career, achieve something, accomplish something, be someone of significance. And yet Jesus says to us, humble yourself before me. The world says, maximize yourself. And Jesus says, maximize me. We see this in the life of Hannah. Uh, we've, we've, we've done two, two sermons on this so far in 1 Samuel, and we've seen Hannah, she felt like her life was worthless. At that time uh, period, having children for a woman was a significant thing. It brought kind of economic prosperity, and it brought uh, a lot of other things as well. And she wasn't able to. And so we, we saw in the first sermon we listened to that she cried out to the Lord, in humility and said, if you give me a child, I will give him back to you. And then, and then we uh, saw in the, the second sermon in the series that Hannah 
received a son. She bore a son called Samuel and she gave him to the Lord at the temple. Hannah recognized her inability to save herself, that she had no control ultimately over her life's circumstances. And what it drove her to do was pray, a very humble prayer. It's interesting, isn't it, that when Hannah prays uh, this, this kind of response to what's happened in v- chapter two, the first things that come out of her mouth, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. What she's doing here is recognizing, hang on a sec, the whole reason my life has shifted is not by what I've done, by what the, lo- but, but why, what the Lord has done. And it's interesting as well that she recognizes here that the situation she was in, in which uh, it describes her as being distressed when she wasn't bearing sons, she recognizes that that too was a situation that God was sovereign over in her life. And it wasn't just that God had forgotten about her and then he remembered her and changed. No, the Lord remembered her always, always. It's maybe strange when we hear these words um, for a mother to kind of give her son to the temple. Like she's, she's waited years for her son. Uh, he is born, she weans him, and then she gives him, as she said she would, uh, to serve in the temple. You would think that this prayer might be a prayer of lament or sadness. Um, like how on earth do you kind of give up your young child and think, hey, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And yet it's amazing here that what the Lord's done in Hannah's life has not only shifted her circumstances, but he's also shifted her mindset. And she can now say that, hey, I'm giving, I'm giving my son as I said I would to serve in the temple. And I completely trust that the Lord is at work here. What the Lord's given Hannah ultimately here is faith to trust him. Jim Packer says this, he says, people who know their God are before anything else, people who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is in their prayers. And again, this is what we're looking at this morning, Hannah's prayer. Hannah's learned a lesson that Jesus himself taught. The lesson is whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the lesson she's learned. It's what the Lord does. And that's why in verse two, she can say, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Like genuinely, there is no one that can shift life circumstances the way the Lord can. And she kind of digs in uh, in verses three to eight. She kind of looks at, okay, in what ways is the Lord sovereign over our lives? Alistair Begg, when he preached on this, he called this section, uh, verses, verses three to eight, a catalog of ways in which God turns human estimates of significance and power upside down. And we read it, don't we? Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. 
And then she just makes these comparisons. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children has fallen. The Lord kills and brings life. He brings down and to shoal and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's and on them he has set the world. If you look at verse nine again, for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's and on them he has set the world. It's kind of a weird verse, kind of confusing. What does that mean? What it means is that the way that the Lord, as he kind of sovereignly rules over the world, the way he set this up, is this principle that he will be the one to raise people up. He will be the one to bring life. And those who are exalted are going to be humbled. And those who are humbled, who humble themselves will be exalted. That's the foundations of how this world works. And we see it in Hannah's case, don't we? And we see this in First First and Second Samuel. If you were at home group uh, last week, we kind of looked at it in a bit more detail. We see this pattern over and over again of the proud being humbled and the humble being exalted. And it can happen physically in our lives. I don't want to make this fully spiritual. The Lord can, when we have no money, provide for us. The Lord can, when we are barren, give us children. The Lord can, when we are weak, give us strength. Physically, the Lord can do all of those things. And yet it's interesting, isn't it, that that can't be the full explanation. I actually looked up, uh, you know, as you do when you're studying, you look up this verses, and, and the verse that says the Lord makes the poor and makes rich. Um, I found that verse on a website of a guy called uh, Kenneth Copeland. I don't know if you know that name. Kenneth Copeland is like a big time prosperity preacher. His, uh, on his website, on the top line says, we want you to know uh, physical prosperity through, the, through Jesus. Uh, and he's interpreted this passage as he makes people rich. And yet it doesn't really make any sense to kind of interpret it that way fully, although he can. Because when we look at, for example, the early church, uh, we don't see a lot of people that are physically rich. We see a lot of brokenness. We don't see people kind of like living the perfect life. We see pain. And the Apostle Paul makes it really clear kind of quite a few times. My life has been really difficult since following Jesus. But what we can know, and and through especially what Paul says in the New Testament, we can know that the Lord can do these things physically, yes, but he will certainly do them spiritually. Let me read you some verses here from the New Testament where Paul takes this idea that we are made strong, that we've ceased to hunger, that we are fruitful, that we are made alive, that we are made rich, that we are exalted. This happens fully spiritually. Let me read this. And this is Paul kind of really touching on especially the idea of that we are made strong. He says, especially, uh, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in my flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. And this is Paul kind of talking about this kind of, uh, most commentators would think a physical kind of 
problem, a physical weakness. And then he said, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. And Paul then goes on to say, therefore I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Isn't that amazing that Paul said, hey, I am strong. I am weak. And yet in my weakness, physically, I am strong because the Lord is at work in me. Another example, this idea of the hungry now made full. Jesus says, and we looked at this over the summer, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. And again, in in Ephesians 2, Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ. Though we were dead, you are saved by grace. And lastly, again, this idea of riches, the poor made rich. Paul says, This grace was given to me, the least of all saints, to proclaim, proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. This is something that the Lord gives us today. This is honestly incredibly countercultural, right? At school, uh, the advice that in some way, in a strange way, even I will give the kids, because I feel like I have to say the right thing. The advice I'll give them is if they're really struggling, okay, hey, let, let's come up with some kind of plan. Forget about what everyone thinks about you. Let's come up with some kind of plan for you to kind of find yourself a little bit more happiness. Maybe that's in, uh, maybe we need to start studying harder or find a club or something like that. And that's our advice. The advice I don't give them at school is uh, humble yourself. And the place that you really can find meaning, the place you can really find what you need is in God when you humble yourself before him. It's countercultural because really the way that we find strength, the way that we find riches, the way that we find satisfaction and the way that we ultimately find true life is when we let go. We give up all of our effort. There's that wonderful verse, isn't there? It says, when striving cease and we let Jesus give it to us. And yet you should be thinking You should be thinking as I'm saying this, well, like you're saying all this stuff that God's going to exalt the humble and humble uh, the proud. That doesn't really make any sense in my life. I'm not like, you know, if I'm humble, I'm not flying along. I'm not kind of climbing the ladder. And those who I know in my life who I work with, who are super arrogant, hey, they're flying up. They're making loads of money. They've got the nice car and the nice house and all this kind of stuff. How is that the Lord humbling them? The Lord doesn't always do it now. And in Hannah's life, he waited a long time to do it. And if you look down at verse 9 and 10, there's a shift in tense, in verb, and it goes to this future tense. Verses 3 to 8 is kind of this present moment. And yet verses 9 and 10, this future tense, he will guard the feet. He will guard in the future. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. 
in the future. There's a really strong warning here for the proud. That if you don't humble yourself before the Lord, it says in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Judgment comes for the proud. Judgment comes for the proud who do not humble themselves before the Lord. And yet for those who have humbled themselves before the Lord, we look forward to the day, don't we? And this this is amazing thing that Hannah probably didn't fully understand what she was saying here. But this amazing look forward to this messianic kind of looking forward to Christ and his return when it says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Anointed being the same word as Messiah. That when Christ come, comes back in judgment, the proud will be crushed and the humble will be exalted. And it's amazing that if you humble yourself before the Lord and you put your faith in him and trust in him, we will never feel hungry again. We will never feel weak again. We will never know thirst. We will never know poverty. We will never know barrenness. We will never know death. That is the hope for the Christian that one day these promises he makes it, that they will come to full fruition in our lives and never change. Even if it's not today that these things come in your life and it's not tomorrow, it's not next week, it might not be till the day you die, but one day when you stand before him, it will happen in fullness and never leave. And the challenge for us, isn't it, that we just need to wait on the Lord sometimes. So difficult to do and trust as Hannah did that he is sovereign and he knows what he's doing. You might be thinking, you know, (laughs) maybe this is like Hannah's just kind of like an exception here. You know, we don't always see this in the Bible. Maybe Hannah has just got lucky or maybe... Uh, maybe she's just kind of this unique story. You're taking this massive idea of of uh, hu- being humble being exalted and the exalted being humble, and you're kind of making this huge point. It's like, maybe it's just Hannah. How do we know this is true? How do we know this is true? We know this is true because ultimately it was true of Christ. And I'm going to read the verses Luke read in Philippians 2, and he said something very similar to what I'm going to say, which is great. So if you weren't paying attention, try and pay attention now. Here we go. Let me read Philippians chapter 2. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the ultimate example of why this is true, because Jesus is the ultimate example of someone humbling themselves. The ultimate humility, and the writer says here in Philippians, even death to death on a cross, he humbled himself. There's a really interesting word in Philippians 2. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, in other words, Jesus humbled himself, so God exalted him. 
We cannot be exalted before we are first humble. Jesus's humility produced exaltation by the Father. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that the humble can be exalted only because of Christ, that God humbled himself so that the humble died in place of the proud, that God came down to arrogant humans, humans that don't say that there is no one like him, humans that deny there is no one beside him, humans that refuse to exalt him in their hearts. And he humbled himself in place of the arrogant on the cross so that we can now be humbled. And it's only because of Christ's death on the cross that we can now have humility because it's only through Christ's work that we can clearly see God and what he's done. It's because of his love, God humbled himself to save the arrogant, proud, sinful people of this planet. And this doesn't really make sense to us fully until we realize in verse 10, when we read of the judgment coming, that that was us. That we were the objects to be broken to pieces. We were the ones against whom the Lord would thunder. And it's only because of Christ that that is not true. The only way we can find true meaning in our lives It's by humbling ourselves at the cross of Christ. The problem is that we are so very often proud still. Even those who know Christ are proud. You cannot listen to this and read this this kind of this point that Hannah's making in her prayer and think, well, I better go home and then just try harder to be humble. We're arrogant by nature. It's not going to work. Self-effort only leads to judgment. We must depend on the grace of God in our lives. How do we become humble then? How do we become humble? We receive it. We don't generate it. We receive it. We find what we really need in life by every day, humbly laying down our lives at the cross of Christ and receiving his humility by his spirit. There's that wonderful verse, isn't it? Uh, That wonderful part of verse nine. For not by might shall a man prevail. By what then? By the humility that comes from Christ. And there's only one command here. There's only one command in this whole thing. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. He sees us. He sees our hearts. There's a wonderful line in a song called Indescribable by Chris Tomlin that says, you see the depths of my heart and you love me the same. That's something we have to rely on. Just to close, I'm just going to talk real briefly about like what humility actually is. Um, society will say that humility is thinking less of yourself and will say, um, I mean, if I'm being super honest, I did this on, uh, on Thursday. I was chatting with a colleague um, and she just came up to me. And, um, oh, so just a bit of context, sorry. I teach in a, like a secondary school down the road and I, um, I love physics and I teach physics, um, but I also do a basketball club that I sometimes might enjoy more. And um, um, so one of the, another colleague whose son plays in like the basketball team that I've set up, she came over to me and she said, um, 
hey, I just want to say thanks. He's, he's really enjoying uh, playing and he really looks forward to coming to practices and all this kind of stuff. And he's really kind of started enjoying school a bit more because of the club you've set up. And my response to that was, well, you know, I, as, as we do in Britain, uh, you know, oh, well, anyone could be doing it and oh, well, any PE teacher could have done it. There's nothing special about me. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of denying something that is actually true. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think humility is me standing there and saying, well, actually, it's, I'm, I've done, you know, it's not me. I'm a bit rubbish, to be honest, you know, and, and all that. That's not humility. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, uh, it's 40 pages. It takes 20 minutes to read. I'd really recommend you read this book. Um, and he says this about what humility is for the Christian. And I think he's talking about C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. Listen, this is amazing. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking that they were humble. I'm going to read that again. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always, uh, sorry, they would not be always telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. And this is the definition that I love because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. I'm going to read that again because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. If we're thinking about ourselves less, who are we thinking about? Christ. And we focus on him. And so, and Hannah says in verse one and two, who's she talking about here? My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn or my strength is exalted in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. She's thinking about Christ, not herself. C.S. Lewis uh, in his book, Screwtape Letters, and I'm going to close with this. um, He kind of talks about how this idea gets fleshed out, what it would look like in the church. Uh, if we were really humble before the Lord. And just a heads up, uh, the book is a devil writing to a, a junior devil. So when he says the enemy here, he's talking about like God. Um, and it's the bad guys talking about the good guys, if that makes sense. So when you hear the enemy, he's talking about God. So this is one of the devils talking. He says, to anticipate the enemy's strategy, the enemy being God, to anticipate the enemy's strategy, we must consider his aims. The enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more or less glad at having done it than he would be if it had been done by another. The enemy wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents or in a sunrise, an elephant or a waterfall. He wants each man in the long run to be able to be able to recognize all creatures as glorious and excellent things. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible but it is his long-term policy, I fear, to restore them 
Restore to them a new kind of self-love, a charity and gratitude for all selves, including their own. When they have really learned to love their neighbors as themselves, they will be allowed to love themselves as their neighbors. And I'm going to just close with this: these last two sentences. Uh, for we must never forget what is the most repellent and inexplicable trait in our enemy. He really loves the hairless worms he's created and always gives back to them with his right hand what he has taken away with his left. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the one who is sovereign, not us. Father, we thank you that you are the one who oversees our lives. Father, thank you that you are the one who can make us humble because of what Christ has done and the way that Christ humbled himself. Father, may we be a church that is humble before you. And Father, if there's anyone here today who has not done that, I pray that they may do that today, that they may come and turn to you in salvation. And through that humility, they can find the riches of your grace, the strength of your might, the joy of your salvation. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.